All right, it is so good to be at the porch. How are we doing tonight? Uh, for all my Aggies in here, let me just say, howdy! All right. You guys travel strong. Thanks for doing that. I, I do want to say hello to everyone watching in the other rooms and to all the different porch live sites. It's so good to, it's so good to get to spend a little time uh, with you tonight. I love JD. I love David. I love the ministry of the porch. So it's great to see you. I want to start tonight... Uh, just by sharing with you how I proposed to my wife. Uh, there are some people in the room who love a good proposal story, and others of you would probably rather leave right now. I understand. So let me just say, ladies, you're like hardwired to enjoy good engagement stories. So as I'm talking, your body is going to be doing something involuntarily. Ah, you just go with it. Don't fight it. That's what you were made to do. Men... While the women are emotionally vomiting, you might just be vomiting, and that's okay. <laughs> but here's what I would encourage you to do. Take notes on this story. Go and find a girl outside of this room. Claim it all as your own. All I ask is that you DM me and credit me as a romantic genius. Anyway, so here's how I proposed to my wife, Catherine. Several years ago, I was living in Dallas. She was living in... Let me change that. I was living in Austin. She was living in Dallas. It was that long ago, people. Um, but we would travel on the weekends to see each other. And so I convinced her on this weekend that she was going to be flying from Austin or from Dallas to Austin to visit me. I convinced her of this by buying her a fully refundable ticket on southwest.com. I sent her the e-confirmation and then I got my money back. So uh, without her knowing, she thought she was going to fly on a Friday. On a Thursday before the Friday, I made my way to Dallas without her knowing. And then during the day on Friday, I made my way up to her work and I was co in cahoots with her boss and her co-workers. And they lured Catherine away from her desk, got into her purse, grabbed her keys, came outside, unlocked her car all the while, Catherine had no clue she was about to get punked. So what I did was I got into her car and I put two dozen roses, I sprinkled the whole car with rose petals, and then in the seat I put a note that says, change of plans, tonight is a very important night in the history of our relationship, go home and then you'll get further instructions. So Catherine comes out of her work thinking that she's going to get in her car to drive to the airport and instead she finds that blissful love has exploded all over the inside of her car. So she makes her way back to her apartment where I have already been and she opens the door and there is a trail of rose petals from the front door all the way into the bedroom. And there on the bed was me. Not really. Okay, just making sure that you hit. Sorry, highly inappropriate. Anyway, there on the bed, my apologies. Uh, there on the bed was two dozen more roses, a dress that I had bought for Catherine, and a note that said, see you at six. Now, ladies, I know what you're thinking. You're like, you bought a dress for her? That is super dangerous because what if it doesn't fit? Deal breaker right there. Fortunately, Catherine has a twin sister, so I was like, will this fit Catherine? Psh, yes, great, good, got it. 
6 p.m., she comes out of her apartment where I am waiting in front of a limousine holding two dozen more roses. We get into the limo, we make our way to downtown Dallas, and then we go and eat dinner on the 39th floor of the downtown Dallas skyscraper that has the hole in the middle of it. And so we sit in the restaurant right below that hole, and we're watching the sunset, and then right there in the middle of the sunset, as we're eating dinner, I look at Catherine, I take her by the hand, and I say, Catherine, will you past the sweet and low. And she did, and I appreciated that. So we finished up dinner, we hopped back in the limo, and then we made our way to my cousin's backyard. Now, I know what you're thinking, swerve, like who goes to their cousin's backyard when they're proposing? Well, this guy does. Why? Because my cousin shared a backyard with former Dallas Cowboy football player Daryl Johnston, a.k.a. the Moose, and the Moose had this beautiful private lake with fountains and waterfalls, And so I walked Catherine up the driveway where I had a projection screen set up and I sat her down, I pushed play, and I showed her a slideshow of the two of us from birth to present. She cried. I said, bam. And so she watched the slideshow. And after she finished the slideshow, I took her by the hand and I walked her down to the lake. It was very dark, but it was lit by candles. And the water was dark, but there was floating candles in the lake. And there in the lake was a rowboat. And so I put Catherine in the rowboat. There were two dozen more roses. True story, people. (laughs) Put her in the rowboat. I'm not really great at rowboats, but I put her in it. And I proceeded to row the two of us out to the middle of this lake. And there, in the middle of the lake... I got down on one knee and I told Catherine that I loved her for the very first time in our relationship because I didn't want to say it till I could put a ring on it. You know what I mean? So I told her that I loved her for the very first time. And then I asked her this question. I said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And that was a pretty good thing. So after she said yes, uh, there was uh, some PDA and uh, we hugged it out. And then as we were in that rowboat, I said, well, I want to get you in the light so that you can see your ring. And so I rowed the two of us back to the shore. And I said, let's go knock on my cousin's door. And that way you can see your ring in the light. And the door opened and there was her family. And estrogen just exploded (laughs) in that moment. And then 10 seconds later, 20 of her closest friends coming running around the corner, more estrogen just flying all over the place. I feel highly uncomfortable in this moment. And then we go outside and we spend the rest of the evening celebrating the fact that a girl like that would say yes to a dude like this. That's all I wanted to share with you tonight. Let's pray and get out of here. Okay, no, just joking. It's an incredible night. I love that night, and I love sharing our story. Uh, many of you guys have your own stories. I love sharing our story. But as I think back to that night, and I think back to Catherine's, yes, here's the realization that I have. In that moment, Catherine wasn't just saying yes to a wedding. She was saying yes to so much more. That one yes was actually a countless number of yeses. In that moment, what she was saying yes to was she was saying yes to traveling really hard all over this nation into different cool parts of the world during our first year of marriage. She was saying yes to binging the office for our third time now. She was saying yes to having three crazy boys with 
me. She was saying yes to moving to Austin to share Jesus with high school students and then to Waco to share Jesus with college students. And then she was saying yes to moving to College Station to share Jesus with college students at Texas A&M University. She was saying yes to so many great things. But in that moment, she was also saying yes to walking through a miscarriage. She was saying yes to sitting in a marriage counselor's office just a year ago because marriage was just tougher than we wanted it to be. See, what I'm trying to tell you is I'm trying to state the obvious, but behind that yes, that yes wasn't just for a wedding because behind every wedding is a marriage. And we need to talk about marriage tonight because here's the reality. Some of you guys, you you came here ready to talk about marriage because you want to be married. Like that whole ring by spring thing, you're like, God, please, not another spring without a ring. (laughs) But then there's some of you guys here, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to be a bachelor to the rapture, and that's kind of your deal right now, and so (laughs) you're really not into this marriage conversation, but statistics would show at least the majority of people sitting in this room are at least open to the idea of marriage. And so if you're open to the idea of marriage, I just want you to think, don't you envision having a good marriage? Like no girl here is getting together with their gal pals. I don't know what y'all call each other, but no girl gets here with their group and they're like, I cannot wait to be married. My husband and I are going to fight all the time. (laughs) And no guy is like, I will want to get out of my marriage often. Like no one says that right now. And yet when you look at different marriages in the world, you know what you see time and time again is you see people's dreams and people's reality going in two totally different directions. And so here's what I want to try and do tonight. I want to try and save your marriage before it even begins. That's my goal tonight. My goal tonight is to save your marriage before it even begins. And I'm going to do it by unpacking for you the ultimate point and purpose of marriage. What I'm really explaining to you is why marriage even exists. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me tonight to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be tonight. Genesis chapter 2 is, is the origination of marriage, and I love that because marriage is God's invention. It is an overflow from the creative genius that is God. And the fact that God put marriage on page 2 of his Bible, it shows us just how passionate he is about marriage. It shows us how much Uh, how pro-marriage God truly is. But what we need to do is we need to align our hearts with God's heart for marriage. If you really want to save your marriage, starting now, the best thing you can do is sync up with God's heart for marriage. And so let's just walk through it. This This is the account of the creation of marriage. It starts in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It starts with these simple words. This is picturing Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eve has not been created yet. Adam's in the garden by himself. 
verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. That's where we have to start is God looks at Adam's isolation in the Garden of Eden. What does he say? He says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, let's just get some background on this statement because this is extremely important. Don't miss it. Genesis chapter 1 is the account of God creating the heavens and the earth. And God slipped into this rhythm when he created. He would speak. He would say, let there be. Let there be light. Let there be uh, oceans. Let there be animals, whatever. He would say, let there be. He would speak. Something would come into existence. And then he would step back, observe it, and call it good. He says that six or seven different times in just chapter one. God deems what he has made good. The reason I tell you that is verse 18 in chapter two. It's the first time in the Bible that we see something being not good. It's the first time that God declares that in his creation, something is not good. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Okay, we need to get some background here, and I need you to track with me because what I'm talking about right now is extremely crucial to the entire understanding of marriage. The reason that God says it's not good for man to be alone is because of what we find in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. What does it say? It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. So here's what this tells us. God created men and women in his image. Well, what does that mean? It means that God created us with the responsibility of imaging him on the earth. What I'm talking about right now is the point and purpose of your existence. Do you want to know why you exist? You exist to represent and reflect God on the earth. We exist to show God off on the earth. That is why God made us. So I just want to be clear. I am drilling down right now to why you even are breathing right now. And for some of you, that's really important because you've been questioning the point of your life. Like you haven't figured out what you're supposed to do with your life yet. And you've begun to wonder what's the point anyway. And you've thought about checking out. Well, let let me just put it this way, okay? You exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. That's the point and purpose of your life. You exist to put Jesus on display to the world. I'll I'll demonstrate it like this. I'm holding my iPhone right now. Think about this. Why does the iPhone exist? The iPhone exists to put the world at your fingertips, right? It does. Like you can FaceTime with anyone on the planet at any time face-to-face. You can get a date without leaving your room. Like one swipe can change your life. I'm not encouraging that. I'm just saying that's a reality. Now, you can live as if the iPhone exists for a different purpose, right? Like you can buy an iPhone, you can put it on your coffee table and be like, this is an incredible coaster. Have you ever tried using your iPhone as a coaster? It works 
especially if you have an OtterBox, it is so effective. Or you can be like, you know what, this table's a little wobbly. You can take it, you can jam it under the leg and be like, man, thank goodness I bought this iPhone because it is great at leveling tables. You can live as if the iPhone exists to be a coaster or to steady a table, but it doesn't change the fact that the iPhone is most fully functioning and most fully alive when it is fulfilling the purpose for which it has been created, which is what? Which is to put the world at your fingertips. It's the same thing with you. I am telling you right now the point and purpose of your life. Your life exists. The point of your life is to point people to Christ. The point of your life is to put God on display to the world. Now, you can live as if you exist for a different purpose. You can live as if you exist to make tons of money. You can live as if you exist to get a ring on your finger. You can live as if you exist to have multiple homes to travel to. But it doesn't change the fact that you will be most fully functioning and most fully alive when you are fulfilling the purpose for which you have been created. Okay? I need you to understand that because that is foundational tonight. God looks at Adam and says, it is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because his responsibility was to image God on the earth. Well, God's a relational God. It, it's, it's this theological concept called the Trinity, where there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's, there's three, but there's only one God. It's three co-equal, co-eternal persons that exist in one, is, one essence. So at the, at the core of who God is are deep, meaningful relationships. So God looks at Adam's isolation, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Why? Because the image of God through Adam's life was being distorted by Adam's isolation. Adam was incapable of reflecting God as God was meant to be reflected because he could not reflect the relational nature of God throughout the earth. Enter Eve. So watch what God does. Verse 18, then the Lord God then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so, ladies, this is where you come in. And I just want you to understand what's going on here. God decides to make Adam a helper. That word in the Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, that word Hebrew, not Hebrew, Hebrew is the language, the word helper, it is used 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 of those times, it is referring to God. And so helper here is not demeaning at all. It actually gives incredible value to the woman. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. In the Hebrew, that literally means like opposite. So what God is, is basically saying is, I, Adam, you don't need a clone you need a compliment. God's looking at Adam and he's, he's saying, you know what, Adam, you're great, but there's, there's ways that I've wired you where you're not going to be able to accomplish all that I've made you to do without the woman. And I'm making the woman in a unique and creative way. She won't be able to accomplish all that I've called her to do without the man. And so, Adam, I'm going to make a woman that is less like you, but more like me. And together, Y'all's responsibility will be to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
their responsibility together, it wasn't just Adam's responsibility, but Adam and Eve together would live on mission as a married couple to to spread God's kingdom throughout the earth, which is pretty incredible. Now, watch how it plays out. Here we go. Now, so here's how God went to work. Verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so this is interesting because God parades all the animals in front of Adam. And we are meant to feel his loneliness. One commentator pictured Adam saying, every animal has a partner, but I have no partner. It's like watching everyone go with their date to the dance, but he's flying stack. We are meant to just feel the, that, that feeling of loneliness as all of these animals are I was going to say hooking up, but that just was not the right wording. Just walking together, and yet Adam, I'm so sorry, Adam is there by himself. Now, this is where it gets really good. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, that's a key word there, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is awesome because that word made, it's the Hebrew word bana, which literally means built. So God built Eve. Everything else in creation, everything in this world that captivates us with its majesty, all the oceans, all of the mountains, God simply spoke and they came into being. But when it came to creating the woman he built, he used his hands. You know what that means? It means nothing else in all of creation got more of God's attention and creative energy than the woman and the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. Now, did you see the wording? God built Adam, and then it says that God brought her to the man. So, this is what I need you to understand real quick, okay? When you get engaged or when you get married, you're going to be hanging out with a couple friends, and here's the question you're going to get asked a lot. The question you're going to get asked a lot is, hey, how'd you guys meet? And when that question gets asked, here's what you and your spouse are going to do. It's like somebody just, (laughs) when that question gets asked, you and your spouse are going to lock eyes with each other. And you're going to look at each other like, we're about to change these people's lives and they don't even know it yet. (laughs) And then y'all are going to start this back and forth like, do you want to tell it? No, no, no. It's an it. Like, it is that important. Do you want to tell it? No. I I like how you tell Well, do you want to? Well, okay. Well, I'll tell it. It's going to be this back and forth. Just a side note, if it takes longer than three minutes to tell, people begin to regret asking. I'm just lovingly telling you that's a word from a friend. But of all of the stories of how we met that exist in this world, no one has a better story than Adam, right? Hey, Adam, I'd love to know, how, uh, how did you and Eve meet? Well, uh, God introduced us. Okay, super Jesus juke, Adam. Okay, we get it. God introduced me to Catherine too. No, for real, God introduced us. Uh, see, 
Um, I was the only man on the planet at the time. <laughs> so uh, God put me to sleep. He took one of my ribs. He invented a woman. He brought her to me. We were both naked, and the rest is history. That's a pretty great story. It's the best story of how we met in the world. And watch Adam's response. This is pretty great. Verse 23, then the man said, this is that last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Do you know, do you know what that is? That's poetry. So Adam meets a woman for the first time and the dude just bursts out into poetry. So men, here's the deal. If you're writing uh, poetry for a girl, you might as well put a ring on it. Because you're in love. That's a joke. Please don't do that. Don't be like, go home like, I'm going to write some poetry tonight and I'm going to propose tomorrow. That's, he said to do it. That's not what I'm saying. But this is a guy in love. That's the power of love. He is speaking poetry. And then verse 24, here's the climax. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is it. This is the invention of marriage. A man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I want you to think about this. God had options. He could have just given Adam more animals. He could have cloned Adam, and he could have just broed out with a bunch of Adams. But what does he do? He creates a woman with a heart, with a mind, with a soul, with a body that fits perfectly with the man, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And the wording is very interesting. What does it say? In the ESV, it says, therefore. But in other translations, it says, for this reason, which begs the question, for what reason? For what reason will a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife? Well, for this reason, because it's not good for man to be alone. But why isn't it good for man to be alone? Because men and women exist to put the beauty of Jesus Christ on display in the world. In isolation, Adam was incapable of fulfilling the purpose for which he was created, which was to put the beauty of Christ on display. So here's what that means. Why does marriage exist? Ultimately, marriage exists to put the beauty of Jesus Christ on display to the world. That's it. That is why marriage exists. It's for two people who were created to image God on the earth, to come together and image God in an even different in great way. That is why marriage exists. I don't know if you realize this, but marriage is actually the clearest picture we have of understanding God. If God is a triune God, which means he is three persons that exist in one essence, a lot of people try and explain the the Trinity by looking at an apple or looking at how water can be water and a gas and a solid. All of those fall short. The best picture we have of God is marriage, where two equal people become one in essence 
in God's eyes. That is why marriage exists. Marriage exists to point to Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way. Your story of how you guys met and how God brought you together, your story exists to point to an even greater story. It's the story of Christ's love for his bride, who is the church, not the building that we're in, but the people of God. Your story exists to point people to the greater story of Jesus' love for the church. So when you're married and you selflessly serve your spouse, anytime you selflessly serve your spouse, you know what you're doing? You're pointing to Jesus' selflessness when he laid down his life for you and for me on the cross, when he voluntarily sacrificed his life on the cross for our sins, you point to that selflessness. During the times in life when marriage is tough and and you don't feel in love and it feels easier to run, but you stay in it and you work for it and you choose to love and you're faithful, you know what you're doing is you're pointing to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ who will never leave us or forsake us. Nothing can separate us from his great love. And in the moments where everything is as it should be, when the laughter is rich and you share great meals together and sex is enjoyable, in all of those times when everything is as it should be and you give glory and praise to God, you point the world to how good and great your God truly is. See, this is the point of marriage. So let's just be clear. Marriage doesn't exist first and foremost for your happiness. Marriage doesn't exist, first and foremost, for companionship. Marriage doesn't exist for you you to have guiltless sex. Marriage exists for you to put the beauty of Jesus Christ on display to the world. That's what we're talking about. And if you want to save your marriage before it ever begins, intermarriage with that mentality that it is a marriage on mission. Here's what I want to do just with the remainder of my time. And these will go quick, so please listen closely. I want to just give you eight keys to saving your marriage before it begins. So let's just get real practical. The first is this marriage has a mission. Marriage has a mission. What is it? I've said it multiple times. The point of your future marriage will be to point to Jesus Christ. It will be to put his love on display to the world. Your marriage has a mission. I often tell people in premarital counseling, your greatest ministry will be through your marriage. And my hope is my greatest ministry during my lifetime, my hope is that it will be through my marriage. Even though I speak to To a lot of people each week, my hope is that my greatest ministry will be through my marriage. Why? Because I've only made a covenant in this world with my wife. I haven't made a covenant to my kids, even though I love my kids. I haven't made a covenant to Breakaway, even though I love Breakaway. I've only made a covenant to my wife. And so I want our marriage to be our greatest ministry. Now, uh, Let me just say this. Some of you guys are not going to want to hear this, but let me just lovingly tell you, here's the problem 
with a Christian marrying someone who isn't a Christian. The problem is that when a Christian marries someone who's not a Christian, instead of your mission being the world, your mission becomes your spouse. And so if you're contemplating marrying an unbeliever, I want to put a question kind of like a pebble in your shoe. You need to decide, do you want to spend your marriage praying with your spouse or praying for your spouse? Because those are two totally different experiences. Your marriage has a mission. The second thing that will save your marriage before it begins is this. Just realize single and lonely is better than married and lonely. I promise you, single and lonely is better than married and lonely. There is a marriage after your wedding. And so please, all eyes on me, don't miss what I'm about to tell you. Marriage does not solve your problems. It intensifies your problems. So if there's red flags in the relationship right now, I promise you they will not magically disappear when you get married, okay? Marriage doesn't solve problems. It intensifies your problems. Do not marry anyone for who you hope that they become. Some of y'all are in relationships right now that you shouldn't be in. Why? Because everyone around you is telling you this is not the right relationship for you to be in. But you're buying into what I like to call Akon theology. I don't know if you remember Akon, but Akon has a song where he says this. He says, Nobody want to see us together, but it don't matter, no, I got you. No, it does matter. If no one wants to see you together, you should probably not be together. And for you to just move forward hoping for the best will put you in a world of hurt. You can't imagine how many lonely married people there are in this world. No one is better than the wrong one. I assure you of that. The third thing is this, cultivate your character. From now, cultivate your character. Let me, let me explain it this way. A few years ago, my wife and I, we loved to go to New York at Christmas time, and so we always take a selfie in front of the tree. Well, probably five years ago, we were taking a selfie in front of, you know, tree at Rockefeller Center, and we did the thing where you take the selfie and then you automatically, instantly want to look at how the picture came out. And we both had the same reaction. Like, we both smiled. We took the picture. We are like, we crushed it. And then we look and we're like, we are officially too old for selfies. Like, they're, they're too up close. Like, I was like, those, look at those wrinkles around my eyes. Like, I, th- I thought I was like this. I turned out like this. It, I don't understand, like, what happened? And it was just a reminder that time is not on the side of external beauty. It's not. So the further you get into marriage, you're going to need your character to facilitate the attraction between you and your spouse. I assure you of that. But let's just be clear. It is possible to live a double life where you have this this external public persona, but then you have this private reality. Your spouse is the one who will be most acquainted with that private reality. And if there is compromise in your character, I promise you it will strain 
your marriage. Cultivate your character. Now, if you have roommates, then ask your roommates to help you prepare for your lifelong roommate. And just ask them, are there any cracks in my character? Here's just some good questions for you to ask yourself. Do you smell, of, do you smell more of conviction or compromise? good question to ask. In the way that you talk, in the way that you act on the weekends, when you go out after work for happy hour, do you smell more of conviction or compromise? Do you smell of more of faithfulness or flakiness? Can people count on you? Are you where you tell, are you where you tell people you're going to be? Do you show up? Do you leave people stranded? If so, that's, deal with it. Grow, pursue faithfulness. What about this? Do you smell of selfishness or selflessness? Does drama follow you around? Does all of your time with your group of friends revolve around you? Is it always you dumping all of your problems upon your friends? That's okay. It's just good to realize that, though, and grow. Cultivate your character. Here's the next thing. Comparison kills closeness. See, here's the problem with getting married in a social media age because we compare like we breathe. We compare ourselves to other people's lives all the time. Some of you are wildly unhappy, and at the root of your unhappiness, I promise you, it's comparison. Because you're consistently comparing your unfiltered life to other people's filtered feeds, and it drives you crazy. But man, comparison is toxic to a marriage because you're going to get into marriage and and you're going to begin to look at what he and she are doing and and what that couple is like and where they're traveling to and how much money they have and how much more in shape he is than your he. You're going to be comparing and comparison kills closeness. Because you know what comparison does it? It demands that your spouse competes for your affection. And let me just say this. I want to talk for a moment about pornography. Because if statistics are right, there is plenty of men and women watching right now who struggle with pornography. Six in ten seek it out at least monthly. Pornography, it, it cultivates the demand for novelty. And so what pornography does is it invites perpetual comparison into your marriage. And while you're comparing, your spouse is competing for your affection for your attention, for your attraction. So let me just tell you how things can unravel because of comparison. Comparison leads to competition. Competition fuels insecurity. Insecurity leads to anger. Anger leads to distrust. Distrust leads to withdrawal. Withdrawal leads to separation. Separation leads to divorce. Comparison kills closeness. Next thing is this, love has no caveats. I learned this best from Todd Wagner. 
But love has no caveat. So one day you're going to stand on an altar and you're going to share vows. I so-and-so take you so-and-so to be my wife or to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That vow isn't just a tradition. It is a commitment with your significant other before God and family and friends And unless you explicitly declare, hey, just to be clear, there's some caveats to my vows. No, whatever you commit to doing, God will hold you to that. So don't operate with these underlying asterisks where it's like, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, asterisk, as long as I'm still happy. Yeah, I promise to love you, asterisk, footnote, as long as I still feel like you're meeting my needs, as as long as I'm still attracted to you, as long as this thing works and it's not too difficult and we don't have what many call irreconcilable differences. Love has no caveats. See, love isn't something that you fall in and out of. It's a choice. Often it's a feeling, but often it's a choice. And when you stand on that altar and you say, I promise to love you till death do us part, you know what you're really saying? You're saying, you know what, I don't need to know everything that's going to happen between now and death. I don't need to know about all the ups and all the downs. I am committed to loving you. I will choose you till death. Just a few more Conflict doesn't change commitment. You will fight. If you don't fight, you probably need to go to marriage counseling because you're just not saying what you're thinking. Conflict isn't a bad thing. It can be a godly thing. Conflict can actually point to the love of Jesus Christ because Jesus has reconciled us to God. And so he's glorified when we reconcile with each other. But when you conflict with one another, divorce is not an option. And so Catherine and I know it doesn't matter how how bad this fight is. In the end, it is worth it because we're stuck together. We are stuck together. And as Ben Rector says, forever is a long time to be sad. So we might as well fight for it. Next, being faithful is better than being famous. Being faithful is better than being famous. Here's what I mean by that. Some of you guys have this instinctive drive to achieve, and that's an awesome thing. That's a God-given thing, but it can become, instead of godly, it just becomes God. And some of you guys are chasing something. You've turned it into your God, success, a bottom line on a bank account. You don't know me and I don't know you, but I just want to lovingly say we wear, we wear busyness and workaholism around like a badge of honor. There is nothing impressive about working 80 hours a week. There's nothing impressive about that. And I promise you there will be nothing impressive to your spouse about you working 80 hours a week. You want to know why? Because your spouse will never see you. There is nothing noble about that. So drive, succeed, achieve. 
you know what? Be faithful. If it comes down to a job that will make your life extremely unhealthy, but everyone will know who you are at work and everyone at work will respect you versus being faithful to your wife, faithful to your husband, loving your kids, choose that. Because you're not going to get to heaven and God's like, oh man, well done, good and faithful workaholic. Oh man, well done, good and faithful 100 hour a week girl. Now what does he celebrate? Well done, good and faithful servant. Last thing, and I've gone long. Sorry about that. Today is the best day to passionately follow Jesus. Whatever day you find yourself waking up on today is the best day to follow Jesus. That's it best thing you can do for your marriage is walk faithfully with your God. And let me just close by saying this. You know what? Some of you guys are like, you know what? This is great. Thanks for talking about marriage, but what if I never get married? Like you just said that marriage exists to put the glory of God, the beauty of God on display. What if I never get married? What if I'm never able to truly fulfill the purpose for which I've been created, which is to truly put the beauty of Jesus on display? Well, Here's what you need to understand. Genesis 2.24 says that a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, Jesus Christ left his father in heaven and came to earth, and he did work on a cross. Why? So that he could become one with us, his bride. That's what we're called. We are called the bride of Christ. It the, the point of this is ultimately not about marriage. Marriage is an ultimate. Knowing Jesus is truly ultimate because it's when you are known by Jesus Christ, when you are his bride, you have everything you need for life and godliness. And your life becomes a beautiful display of Jesus' love to you and the rest of the world. I want to save your marriage before it begins. So many people's dreams and reality go in two totally different directions. Where it starts is with Jesus Christ. Do you know him? If you do, walk faithfully with him. If you don't, the invitation tonight is to come and be his bride. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for how you've loved us. I thank you that you left heaven and you came to earth so that we could be joined to you, that we could become one with you, that we could experience intimacy with you, Lord God. I pray, God, that you do do a good work in our hearts tonight. God, I pray for my friends in this room. For those who long to get married one day, I pray that there would be many marriages, future marriages represented in this room 
that would put your beauty on display to this world. I pray that many in this world would come to know you through the love that is seen in the marriages represented in this world. And in this room, may our marriages, may our stories point to a greater story that you, Jesus, left heaven and came to earth. You lived the life that we couldn't. You died the death we deserved to die. You rose from the dead. You conquered sin and death so that we could become one with you. And we need you, God. We trust you. We love you. Would you do a work in our lives and our hearts tonight? In Jesus' name.